I invite you to turn with me this evening in your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning at verse 21. And we will read through 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 8, which if you are paying attention to your bulletins, you'll notice that that is different from what is printed in your bulletin. I, uh, that wasn't a mistake on anyone else's part. It was the fact that uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I realized that I would be too long in the pulpit if I tried to preach on the whole thing that I initially selected. So uh, I'm shortening it a little bit. <clears throat> so uh, tonight we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21 through 15, verse 8. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, pillars, asherim, on every high hill and under every green tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. And they did according to all that the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. As often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? and of the kings of Judah. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Now in the eighteenth year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah, and he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. 
because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, and the rest of the acts of Abijam, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, and Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, you have told us that all Scripture is breathed out by you, that it is profitable for instruction and for edification, that we would be equipped to live as you would have us to live. Oh, Lord, we do pray this night that as we look at this account of the city of Jerusalem and the region of Judah during the reigns of these two kings, that you would teach us those things that we need to learn. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You remember that uh, the Lord tore away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the ten northern tribes. They are now ruled by Jeroboam in the north. Last week we considered Jeroboam's sick son, Abijah, and how Jeroboam instructed his wife to get a word from the prophet Ahijah about the child's recovery. And Jeroboam instructed his wife to disguise herself, and that did not work. And the Lord unveiled her deceit. And uh, Abijah, uh, the son of Jeroboam, uh, his mother was told that he would die as soon as she entered the city gates. And he did, in fact, die. And yet the Lord was merciful to Abijah, and of all of the sons of Jeroboam, he alone was mourned and grieved over. He alone, the Lord, graciously uh, sat his favor upon him. And yet uh, the judgment upon Jeroboam's sons was that they would all be killed and be killed in such a way that the curse was very evident upon them. And so our attention now tonight switches from the northern kingdom of the ten tribes ruled by Jeroboam to the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, as they are ruled by Rehoboam. One uh, commentator on this part of scripture makes this comment, these chapters are every schoolchild's nightmare. A king rises, a king reigns. A king sins, a king dies. His son rises, his son reigns. His son sins, and his son dies. There are confusing dates. There are confusing names. And the kings just blur together so often. And uh, we're going to begin to see this as we go through these chapters of, in the book of Kings. And yet, it is the Lord's will that we read and profit by his word in these places. And so tonight, we're going to look at uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 21, and then uh, get to uh, 
the chapter 15 at, at the end of, uh, or uh, end of verse 8. And so uh, the theme, I think, of the section of scripture that we're going to deal with tonight is this, that the promise of God is our only security in times of judgment. The promise of God is our only security in times of judgment. Another way of saying that, I think, is to draw attention to this lamp that is mentioned. That the Lord left a lamp in Jerusalem. I love that imagery. I think of a dark night. And I think of a single shining lamp that shines perpetually by the decree of God. And so we want to see that in that promise that God gave to David is contained our security. In that promise, in the midst of dark times, in the midst of times in which the world seems upside down, in that promise, in that word of God is our confidence and is the thing that gives us a sense of security and understanding in the world that we live, which is topsy-turvy, which is all around us. In our own lives, we experience this as well. And our attention needs to be upon that lamp that shines. So that's what I would like for us to consider and do it under three headings. First, we want to see Judah's provocation. Judah's provocation. And we see this in chapter 14, verses 21 through 24. And also, we see it continued in the reign of Abijam in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Judah's provocation. Secondly, I'd like for us to note God's punishment upon Judah. God's punishment upon Judah. We see this in chapter 14, verses 25 through 28. And then thirdly, God's eternal lamp. We see this in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. And so, um, remembering then that the Lord is our only security in times of darkness and times of judgment, we look first at Judah's provocation. Judah's provocation. We want to go then to the uh, chapter 14, verse 21 where we see then the mention of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who reigns now in Judah. And Rehoboam was, we are given his age when he began his reign, and we're told that he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, isn't it, that with the mention of Jerusalem, it is said that Jerusalem is the city that the Lord had chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Now you might ask the question, why would the writer of Kings make it a point to describe Jerusalem in that way? The city, 
the Lord had chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And that city, Jerusalem, is mentioned in such a way, I believe, for this reason. We have just considered Jeroboam in the north and his erection of a new capital and a place of worship in the city of Bethel and also in the city of Dan. And so the writer of Kings is very purposefully drawing our attention to Jerusalem as the place that the Lord chose to put his name there where his glory is in the temple that Solomon had built there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the one legitimate place of the worship of God. And he's making that point because in the previous chapter, he's described what Jeroboam has done and Jeroboam's sin in erecting a counter cult, as it were, a counter place of worship with a selection of priests uh, who were not of the tribe of Levi and who were anyone could become a priest. And it was a false and abominable worship. And uh, the writer of Kings wants us to, with the mention of Jerusalem, he wants us to see something of the fact that of God's glory being there, that this is the place that all of Israel was to go. It was God's intention in the separation of the ten tribes not to separate them in the religious sense. It was his intention that the northern tribes would continue to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, that they would continue to worship in Jerusalem, though they would be governed politically under a separate king. So we notice that, don't we? Jerusalem is mentioned. We notice as well that Rehoboam's mother's name is mentioned, Nama the Ammonite. And that wouldn't stand out so much except for the fact that it's mentioned again in verse 31. If you scan down to verse 31, you notice that at the end of the section on Rehoboam, it says again, his mother's name was Nama the Ammonite. That's one of the methods that writers in the Old Testament use. They frame an account between two mentions of, a, of the same thing. At the beginning of the account, he mentions Rehoboam's mother. At the end of the account, he mentions Rehoboam's mother. And so yeah, that, I think, is purposeful. And we remember that the Ammonites, of whom, from whom... Uh, Nama comes, were worshippers of Milcom or Molech. And Molech is associated in the Old Testament with child sacrifice. And it is, uh, uh, it, it is a horrendous thing to consider that in or even around the city of Jerusalem where the Lord's name is, that Nama would have enough influence that she would influence her son to allow the worship of Moloch. And uh, Matthew Henry writes about Nama these words. He says, It is probable that Solomon was in love with her, 
because she was Nama. And Nama means beautiful. And Matthew Henry says, and his father was loath to cross him, but it proved to have a very bad influence upon his posterity. Now his father, uh, he, he refers to there as David. David was loath to cross Solomon in his marriage to Nama. But Nama was a beautiful woman, evidently, but she was also an Ammonite and was influential in, in, in her son's allowance of the worship of the god of the Ammonites. So the writer implies, by the mentioning of her twice, that the desire uh, that the king, uh, that uh, uh, Rehoboam did not want to displease his mother. One of the reasons we're able to bring ourselves <clears throat> to do what we know is wrong is because we don't want to displease someone. And in this case, it's probably very much the case that Rehoboam did not want to displease his mother. Have you ever been in a situation when you're with other people who are doing things that you know to be wrong? And you know them clearly to be wrong. And yet we're influenced to go along in situations that we would not otherwise do because of a misplaced loyalty in relationships that we might have with others who do not know and love the Lord. And so it's a reminder to us to always be sure that our deepest relationships be with those that know and love the Lord. And that the God that they worship is the God that we worship. And the problem for Rehoboam that his mother had an undue influence upon him in our choosing of our spouses in the choosing of our friends, in the choosing of those that we would get to know in the most, in the deepest, on more deep levels. Let them be those that share your worship of God. So Judah provoked the Lord to jealousy, and the writer says in verse 23 that they built high places on, with pillars and asherim on every high hill. So there was the male pillar and there was the female goddess on every high hill next to the altar of the Lord. And it is thought that these high places that were built were shrines um, in, in, on, on uh, high places uh, of the land. And that uh, before the temple was built, we know that Solomon allowed the worship of, of the true God at the high places, but once the temple was built, they became illegitimate. And uh, that these places had these pagan uh, uh, pillars that were representative of both female and male to represent the worship of these false gods of fertility. And they were false gods of fertility and prostitution took place in connection with the rites that they practiced. So there would be male and female prostitutes, and the Israelites would go into the prostitutes as though they were offering a sacrifice before 
the god uh, before the Asherim, before these pagan gods. And the idea was that they would induce these gods to bestow fertility and blessing upon the land. Now, there's a problem with this. There's a problem with this. And the problem is this. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 17, we read these words. None of the daughters of Israel shall be be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Deuteronomy 16, 21 and 22. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. And so these were abominations that Judah uh, practiced, and the, the, the Lord, uh, they, these were the abominations that, the, uh, that were practiced by the Canaanites in the land of Canaan before they were driven out by the Lord. And that's a point that the writer makes very strongly at the end of verse 24. He says, according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. All of these sins that were done by the Canaanites, the the, 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 uh, Israelites ended up imitating the sins of those that they uh, displaced and that the Lord brought uh, judgment upon them and drove them out and, and, and destroyed them because of the wickedness that they practiced. And Israel now is practicing those very same things. And the implication is, as you read this, the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. The implication as you read that is you you get a premonition. You begin to think, that's what's going to happen to Israel. God's going to do to Israel the same thing that he did to the Canaanites. They're doing the exact same thing. And it is, it is uh, all the more appalling because they are doing it near the city. Later, they'll do it in the city of, Jeru- of Jerusalem itself and in the temple, as a matter of fact, in the, in the place where the Lord had put his name. And the provocation is all the more. And we know that the Lord uh, then shows his wrath and displeasure. And one of the ways that uh, we need, uh, uh, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works in us is he helps us to see sin as sin. We are, we are naturally prone not to see. Because of our own sinful desires, we don't see sin as being exceedingly sinful. And as you read this, and you read about the people of Judah doing these terrible things that the Bible explicitly says don't do them, that they are an abomination, yet they did them, it reminds us of the fact that we all do things that we know that the Bible explicitly forbids. And yet we, we rationalize it, we think about it, we explain it, and there are always reasons that we may give. But we break the commandments of God because uh, we are prone 
to explain away God's commandments. One of the ways that the Spirit works in us and helps us, and we learned this this morning in our Sunday school class, one of the ways that the Spirit changes us is by, by showing sin in its true colors, its great deceitfulness, and its tragic end. Always take sin seriously. We should always take sin seriously. We need to see it in its true colors. We need to see it in such a way that it appears to us to be awful and terrible and causes us to grieve. We need to pray that the Lord would help us to see sin as sin, as well as its tragic consequences. So then we turn now to the second part of uh, uh, of our of this text, and that is the God's punishment upon Judah. God's punishment upon Judah, and we see this in chapter fourteen, verses twenty-five through twenty-eight. And in the fifth year, we're told that uh, the fifth year of Rehoboam, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Now, there's a little bit uh, between uh, verse twenty-five and verse twenty-six. There's a little bit of history that we're not told by the author of the book of Kings, but which you could find in Chronicles, in Second Chronicles. And uh, what happened was is that a huge army came up, and they were prepared to destroy Jerusalem. They destroyed the surrounding towns of Judah, and they were, on, they were, they were set to destroy Jerusalem. And it says that Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah, in Chronicles we read about this, they humbled themselves and they cried out to God. And the Lord heard their cry and did not allow this vast army coming up from Egypt to destroy Jerusalem. But the writer of Kings doesn't give us that, but what he does say in verse 26 is that he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And now, notice the number of times the phrase took away is mentioned. He took away the treasures of the, of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. Again and again, the phrase take away is mentioned. He took all these things, he took away everything. What did they do? They basically, what, what Rehoboam ended up doing is giving away the wealth of King Solomon to the king of Egypt. All the shields, those shields were like uh, Knox's uh, Fort Knox with all the gold. Those shields were made of gold. All of the great treasures. Remember the great description of Solomon's reign. Silver was nothing. Gold was everywhere. Here Rehoboam is stripped of all of the wealth, of the great and the glory of the empire. And you see, this is what happens when God brings judgment. He strips. He takes away. He strips that which is precious, that which is beautiful. He takes it away. And what does Rehoboam do? He replaces it with the gold shields with bronze shields. And he saw to it that they were 
used ceremonially as they had been used before. One of the ways that we see that the Lord disciplines his people when he provokes them to jealousy is by bringing loss. Bringing loss. Matthew Henry says, The bronze shields were an emblem of the diminution of glory. Sin makes the gold become dim. It changes the most fine gold and it turns it into brass. And thus, Judah was weakened. And Matthew Henry continues and he says this, See here how weak and poor they were. And this was the consequence of the former. Sin exposes, it impoverishes, it weakens any people. That's what was happening to Judah. They were being stripped of that which was their glory. We think of Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. What happened? The glory that clothed them was taken away and they knew that they were naked. Mankind created in the image and the likeness of God because of sin is exposed and impoverished and weakened. And don't we feel that even in our own lives? The writer of the psalm says, Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. What a horrible, difficult thing this is. When God disciplines us, when he rebukes us, he takes, he consumes like a moth what is dear dear. That's not the end of the story, though, because the gospel is this, that that which has been removed from us is given to us by God's grace and mercy in the clothing of, in the replacing of that, that glory that was removed with the glory of Christ and the way that the Lord works in us by his spirit to dwell in us and to replenish that which is lost. I was speaking to someone about that recently. Uh, The prophet Joel speaks of God's promise to replace that which the locust has eaten. Look what happened with Joel. He had everything stripped away, yet didn't the Lord replace it? And isn't it the case that in the gospel that the Lord God, though we suffer, though we go through periods of chastisement and discipline, God in his mercy teaches us by these things and he clothes us in Christ. He clothes us in his grace. I want to turn lastly to God's eternal lamp. We see in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 15, uh, something of Abijam. And the writer tells us not very much about Abijam. He just tells us that he reigned three years, and that's one reason why his reign is uh, somewhat subsumed under Rehoboam's. He reigned for just three years, and he tells us that his mother's name was Ma'akab, the daughter of Abishalom. 
the, the one thing that the, the writer of Kings wants us to know about Abijam is that he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father. And so he points us to Abijam's heart. When we read 2 Chronicles chapter 13, we find that Abijam, who is there called Abijah, Abijam and Abijah are the same person. In 2 Chronicles, we read that Abijam was blessed by God with a great military victory over Jeroboam. And you'll find there a very fine speech that Abijam gave in which he defends the orthodoxy of the temple worship in Jerusalem as over against Jeroboam's idolatry. And he says wonderful things there. It was an inspiring speech. And yet, none of that factors in for the writer of 1 Kings. The writer of 1 Kings doesn't so much care that Abijam is orthodox in comparison to Jeroboam. The writer of Kings is concerned with the state of Abijam's heart in comparison to David. It's David that is mentioned, and David's heart by the writer of Kings. And the focus of 1 Kings is on the heart condition of Abijam. He was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. In other words, while he advocated, and we read of that in Second Chronicles, for orthodox temple worship, at the very same time, he tolerated idolatry in Judah. And he walked in the ways of his father Rehoboam, which means that he tolerated the idolatry that was taking place and the devolution that was taking place in Judah at that time. And this points us to the fact that you can be orthodox and you can love the temple and you can love the ceremony and you can love all that is correct about it in contradistinction to all that is false in other places. You can love all of that and not have a heart that is right with God. And, Jerob, and, and Abijam uh, evidently is in this point. And it reminds us of the fact, doesn't it, that uh, you can be reformed, you can be orthodox, you can be theologically correct, you may be able to argue very well for the superiority of what we uh, very lovingly call the Reformed faith. But if the Lord does not have your heart, if we don't repent of our sins, if we don't grieve for our sins, if we don't trust in Christ when things are hard, if we do not trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we may be able to recite the creeds and say all of the right things, but our hearts are not where King David's heart was. And you may say, well, what about David? And the writer of Kings mentions something about David. He says about him that his heart did not turn aside from anything that the Lord commanded all the days of his life. 
except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite, something that looms so large in David's life, takes up one phrase by the writer of Kings. Why is that? Because of David's heart. He, was, he had a heart for God. I ask you, does the Lord have your heart? Do you love the Lord with all of your heart? Are you merely resting in ceremony, in outward acts? The Lord condemns Abijam because of the fact that he, his heart was not wholly true as David's was. And David's, though he sinned greatly, that sin led him to write Psalm 51, didn't it? It led him to write that wonderful statement of repentance and prayer of repentance. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. David's heart was not David's heart, however, that held him secure. And that's what I want us to see next. What accounts for the fact that the Lord didn't bring judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah because of the idolatry that was there? Well, that's answered in verse 4. In verse 4 we read, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Setting up his son after him. Remember that Jeroboam's son were all slated to die, but not so in Judah, not so in Jerusalem, not so with David's sons. He set up their sons to succeed David on the throne in Jerusalem. Why? The Lord gave him a lamp for David's sake. The Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him. What a statement. David, we know, wasn't free from sin. He sinned greatly in this matter of Uriah. But it was David's heart that made him godly. And it was the gift of God's grace to him that David never willingly turned his hand against the commandments of God. He never tolerated idolatry. He did not turn aside from following the Lord all the days. But David's heart was not the thing that kept him secure. It was not David's righteousness. It was the Lord's promise. Because of the Lord's promise, the Lord will not allow the sin of David or any other sin of his descendants to topple the dynasty. Because God made a promise to David that his son would have an eternal, everlasting kingdom. And that promise is the lamp. The promise of God to David is the lamp. It is that sure word of God that we must put our trust in. And it is exactly this great point that the writers of the New Testament want us to hear, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ it is the coming of Jesus into the world that fulfills this promise, this uh, uh, promise of a lamp that would come. They were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the eternal lamp, and it is a lamp that leads us to 
of Jesus. He is the Son of God, according to the flesh, the Son of David, according to the flesh, and he is declared with power to be the Son of God. And this is why the gospel is good news. Ultimately, the covenant of grace is made with Jesus Christ. Who did the covenant, who, who, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed, and in him the promises of God are yes and amen. And we may trust in that sure word. And that's Peter's point. Peter in the New Testament in his second epistle refers to this lamp. He tells us that the prophetic word is confirmed um, uh, in uh, that the Old Testament writings were a lamp and that they were shining in a dark place until the day dawns when the morning star rises in our hearts. In other words, until Jesus comes again. We will have the fullness of his presence then. Now we have the word of God. Now we have a lamp shining in a dark place. Until Jesus comes and we see him face to face, we have the promise of his word. And it is to that promise that we do well to pay attention, as did the godly in Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam's day and Abijam's day. They looked to the promise that God made to David. In your life and in my life, there are many different voices speaking to us. We hear voices in our head. We hear voices on TV. We hear voices in social media. There are thoughts that we think and things that are contrary to the truth of God's word. We think that if we were to hold these things up to the truth of God's word, they would be clearly shown to be lies. But sometimes we allow ourselves to be controlled by the thoughts that we think that are within our own minds and our own heads. But where is the place of security to be found? In any of the mayhem of the voices that we hear around us? No. The voice of security, that place is to be found only in the rock of God's eternal promise. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rock upon which we must build. May God help us to do that. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we um, consider the light of your promise, even in the dark days that we have read about tonight, that uh, we would apply that same uh, promise to our own time and our own lives and help us to look to the sure word of God, the promise that points